let's do something different. Let's tell the stories. A lot of what people enjoy are the stories and the recipe. So that's how the idea for the cookbook came by. And then we said, let's try it with a, with a Kickstarter. Welcome to ChefCast, a podcast helping people in the food industry become better chefs, managers, owners, and innovators. We follow the journeys of interesting people, explore the roles they play, and highlight the lessons they've learned. This is your host, Vijay Galoon. This is ChefCast, episode three. Today we're joined by Wiesam Kahi, the COO of Eat Off Beat. Wiesam was previously a management consultant, and his sister had a career in social impact. One night... During a debate upon some of the best ways to create social impact, the two of them decided it was time to found a for-profit company to address some of those issues. We'll explore the story of Eat Off Beat. Wiesam, welcome to the show. Hi, Vijay. I'm very glad to be here. That's a wonderful idea. So thanks for joining us. And uh, tell us a little bit about what it is that you do with Eat Off Beat and uh, what it is. Sure. So Eat Off Beat is a company that does catering today uh, in New York City. And what's special about Eat Off Beat is that we hire refugees that are talented home cooks and that come and cook in our central kitchen cuisines from their home countries. So it's home cooked food from countries that are like Nepal, Syria, Iraq, Iran, Eritrea, other African countries. Uh, Venezuela soon, etc. And we serve that mostly to corporate catering today, uh, as well as academia. So we have university catering, nonprofit organizations like United Nations or other nonprofits, uh, as well as private individuals who are doing catering uh, at home, catering parties, anything that is 10 people or more, essentially. And so that sounds interesting because uh, usually with when you think about uh, kind of where ethnic food starts, it tends to start in specific neighborhoods with the people who are used to eating it. It sounds like that's not kind of what you guys are doing. So can you tell me a little bit more about your model and, and what you guys are known for? So uh, what's different, I think, about Eat of Beat from the perspective of the person enjoying the food is that there's two things, actually. One it's food that is underrepresented in the uh, even in the New York restaurant scene. It just happens that the countries where refugees come from do not necessarily have a lot of people that are opening restaurants. So you will find a lot of Indian restaurants, not necessarily a lot of Nepali restaurants, uh, more mm-hmm. Ethiopian than Eritrean restaurants, uh, or uh, Iraqi restaurants. You, you find more like Middle Eastern Lebanese restaurants, but not so much Iraqi or Syrian. And yet... The cuisine is just as rich as wealthy and with different variations on, on these other cuisines. So I think that's the first difference. The second difference is that this is probably one of the only or few places where you can enjoy in one meal a mixture of food from different countries that go well together because it has been curated uh, by, our, by our head chef. So that makes it a little bit different. No, interesting. So it does sound like if it's not just you're getting a taste of a, a specific culture, but you're actually getting a multicultural experience uh, and kind of you're you're one of the few places that uh, can put that together in, in one meal. Correct. We like to call it like we're taking you on a culinary trip around the world. The cause is giving us this uh, this excuse or this rationale to do it, if you want, because otherwise, why would you mix 
different countries together. But for us, it's this high level refugee theme that allows us to do that. Tell me a little bit more about how you guys are, are beyond food, helping to share some of the culture and helping people connect with some of these different cultures. Sure, sure. So we like to think of food as part of an overall culinary experience and cultural exchange. So what we do, for example, when we serve our catering is we have um, uh, tent cards for each dish that tell the story of the dish, uh, also of the person. So you have the photo of the chef that cooked this dish, uh, the, a little story of the, of the chef as well. And we would tell you how to enjoy the food. And this is something we're producing also in a cookbook now. So when, you, when you're enjoying our food, it's not just the dish. It's something that goes, goes around it. Uh, some of the ideas we haven't implemented yet, but we would like to implement soon when we have our own space is we could have theme evenings where you're coming and enjoying these different foods. But we would have, for example, music from the various countries. Uh, maybe poetry night. Um, uh, also, we had a couple of events where we had artists, like art, display of art and paintings from these various countries, etc. So, uh, of course, everything, the core of it is still food, but we have all this cultural aspect around it. That sounds terrific. I mean, it sounds like you're really kind of taking, instead of uh, you have to go somewhere to, to get this experience, uh, that somewhere is almost coming to you. Yes, yes, you nailed it. That's actually the, the way you phrased it was part of our earlier uh, marketing pitches. Interesting. Um, so uh, you have an unlikely background for someone in the food industry. Uh, how'd you get there? Yes, yeah, so it's an interesting story. It's not something that was necessarily planned. Uh, I'm a business consultant. I'm an engineer by background. My sister was uh, more in um, like social impact and environment. She worked as an environmental consultant for a while. Uh, then she came to the U.S. from Lebanon and worked in, um, uh, I mean, studied at SIPA, Master in Public, Public Administration, and then wanted to do her own, uh, own business. Um, something with a social impact. So first of all, we didn't even think about food, but then she started making hummus. And uh, the reason why she made hummus is the hummus that she bought from the supermarket was very disappointing, both to her as to me. I, don't, I didn't buy any hummus from the supermarket because I, I just stopped. And she was making the hummus based on our grandmother's recipe. So it's homemade hummus. Our grandmother comes from Aleppo. That's a recipe from Aleppo in Syria. And uh, serving it at various parties, our friends were telling us, wow, this is really awesome. Like, we've never tasted hummus like that. This, is, this has nothing to do with the hummus that we buy in the supermarket. Uh, I even remember uh, a friend of mine was telling me, well, this, this hummus is for royalty. Where did you get that from? <laughs> so, so, you know, I, I am with, with my business mindset. I told Manal, my sister, you know what? There's your idea. Let's create a hummus company. Let's start selling it. So she thought, yeah, okay. I mean, I got excited about it. It was a student project. Uh, started like making PowerPoints. We uh, presented to her teachers, more of it as a student project. But there was the, the refugee crisis looming at that moment. In Lebanon in particular, uh, we had about 2 million Syrian refugees. So there was this desire uh, to do something about 
with, with, with the refugee crisis, especially with my sister. She had been involved with that before. So the idea evolved from there and she started brainstorming, why not make, like have Syrian refugees make the hummus? In Syria, hummus is big. So the idea started like that, but then we said, hey, wait a minute, maybe we can have them cook their own food, not just hummus. And it was still an idea, but then we contacted the IRC, International Rescue Committee, and we said, let's have a meeting and let's see, would they be interested in something like that or not? So the IRC, uh, just as a parenthesis, is an organization uh, worldwide, an NGO that helps refugees resettle in the various countries. So they help them find a home for the first few months and also, to the extent possible, help them find a job in the home countries. So they loved the idea and they said, you know what, a lot of these refugees, majority of them also women, are can be talented home cooks. And, you know, maybe they would love something like that. So we, uh, we said, let's try it. Let's, inter- let's have some of them come with uh, some food. That, that's we really interesting. So it sounds like you, you stumbled into food from kind of more of a, a social mission. And you stumbled yeah. into a for-profit to fulfill some social uh, kind of goals. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so, I mean, the just... To wrap up the story, we met with them. Uh, we brought a, like a very talented chef with us who, who was our third partner. And they brought their food. There was a, a lady at the time from Nepal, from Eritrea, and from Iraq. Three, three ladies at the time. They brought their food that they cooked at home. And we tasted them. I thought, I mean, it was, first of all, I've been to many international restaurants. It was all three things were things that I had never tasted before. They tasted amazing. And I thought, wow, my God, this is really good. But I thought, you know what? Maybe our chef who worked in Michelin star restaurants, who was, you know, sitting next to me, maybe he would think this is very bland or not, that not necessarily good. But then I looked at him and he had sparkle in his eyes and he said, you know what? We can open a restaurant with this. And that was the first sparkle where we said, wow, this, this can really happen. And it makes sense. That's so, so that's cool. So it sounds like yeah. uh, you've got this Michelin uh, starred chef, but uh, you're combining that with uh, grandma's cooking and grandma's recipe. Exactly. And, and to be fair, he's not changing the recipes or anything. He's just helping them. These are not professionally trained people necessarily. So he's uh, helping them maintain the authenticity of their recipe, but, you know, bring the procedures and the cooking and the behavior up to a professional level when you're working in a commercial kitchen. Talk a little bit about that. So you've got a, a business where you're you're trying to create a new model. Um, so it's uh, you know bringing different types of things to uh, to people through kind of a catering approach. Um, you're using yeah. chefs that kind of aren't trained chefs, so they're they're kind of more used to kind of doing things at, at the home scale. Um, you know, for people kind of right in front of them. Um, so how how and you're new to this industry. So how does all that come together? And, and uh, what did starting this look like for you? And um, you know, what kind of things were challenging, and what kind of things did you find out that uh, that you didn't know going in? You know, I mean, it's it's a little bit scary, as you said. My sister nor me have no experience in food. The people that we are hiring are talented home cooks, but not necessarily. They've never actually all of them had never worked in a restaurant before or in a professional environment and we didn't have a place to cook and we didn't want to take any chances with cooking from home or anything we wanted to be completely square with the regulation 
Um, so it, it was quite scary and we didn't have any clients, by the way. I mean, it was just an idea. So we started by contacting people and we fell upon, you know, friends of our chef. They were wealthy individuals in Upper West Side and said, we love the idea. Let's just cater the first party at our home and invite all your friends and then uh, people who helped you, etc. So, um, so we said, okay, let's give it a try. We went to a commercial kitchen. We rented a station for like a few days and we brought people and we cooked, we cooked the first event and it was a huge success. There was a, a journalist from a small publication. I can't remember now, but they published the first article about us and it just started rolling from there. Uh, slowly, slowly. So, so you, yeah, got, a, you got a big break or a small break uh, and kind of then what happened? The first few months we were working part-time. I mean, the, our chefs were working part-time, sometimes two days a week. Sometimes, you know, you, they would come one, one day for eight hours or two days for spe special events. But I think within six or seven months, it started transitioning towards a four to five day week. And today, obviously, we're still at the commercial kitchen, still renting, but we're renting... Uh, basically 45 hours per week. So we have full-time station or sorry, or two at the commercial kitchen. Um, it's challenging. Now you, you asked about challenges. The thing is it's um, we, we, we realized we will never be as efficient as a professional caterer or, or we we're getting there, but we, it took us a long time to start getting as efficient because of the background of our people. Right. Um, so it sounds like kind of you 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 almost have to kind of take kind of uh, the stuff that they're used to doing and then kind of turn them into chefs kind of rather than a lot of chefs will kind of go the other way. Right. They'll learn how to be a chef and then they'll apply it to uh, some particular type of food. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. We, we had this challenge. Now, the, the good thing is because of what we're offering and because it's something different and authentic. Um, there was a little bit of a price premium, so we did get a little bit of break, a little break versus competition. So we could charge a little bit more, but not that much more. So we definitely, we need to work on our efficiency, on our costs, um, and we need the challenge is maintaining this authenticity and the homemade uh, and the involvement of the specific chef who comes from this country. This is key uh, with a little bit more uh, efficiency in producing it. So. And I think it's doable. That's what every day and every week we're working on significantly now with our chef uh, on our processes to make to to control our costs while maintaining this uh, this feeling when you enjoy the food that this is homemade like at home for you. Right. So you sound like a COO, which you are. Uh, so so tell me a little bit about kind of your journey in uh, in kind of picking up that, that hat and uh, starting to figure out uh, this industry and uh, kind of what uh, what realizations you made as, as you've kind of made that shift. That's a tough question. I do have, you know, I've, I've worked as a consultant for operations, never for a kitchen, by the way, never in food, but I've learned a few tricks about how you can, in general, improve operations and the importance of uh, sometimes just being humble and observing and asking the team for feedback and getting the power of the team and improving every week, right? So uh, the, the most of what I do or what I did is just go hang around in the kitchen, help them occasionally observe operations, and then think about what can become better. Always, you know, involving the team in, uh, 
uh, an improvement. So we put in place like a quality and continuous improvement meeting every week where we discuss the feedback from clients, but also how can we do things better? And every day there's, there's a coaching uh, culture. So we, we've had a lot of challenge sometimes with people that we've hired to manage the operations. And we're gradually transitioning from, the con from this concept of managing people to the concept of coaching people and teaching them to you know, express their, their full potential. Because we're realizing the more, at least with, with the culture at least that we built, which is very different from a culture of a restaurant, is that the more you, you bring people that are coming to manage and boss people around and tell them to do stuff a certain way, the more rejection you get bottom up because we're, we've empowered people and we've created a certain culture. And uh, so we started gradually transitioning from this. We went through several uh, operations manager or kitchen managers, if you want, that didn't work out to more, uh, to a role of more coaching and helping. And then, you know, not bossing people, but having them, uh, uh, them do the job and, and helping. So it sounds like so uh, you figured kind of out how to uh, build skills rather than throw pans. Well, yes. <laughs> we, 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 I don't know if we've completely cracked <laughs> cracked the case yet, but that's certainly what we're, what we're doing. And I think it it can work, and it it shows investment in your people, and that's definitely part of of our mission. And the people that who stay with us, they love this. That's terrific. And it sounds like you're you're not just exchanging cultures, but you're also building uh, building up those cultural ambassadors. Definitely. Yeah. Uh, and as you sit as a business person working with the chef in the kitchen, what's your perspective on what things maybe a business person can bring to a food operation that, uh, you know, a chef uh, may or may not want to do? Here's what maybe in our operation, because our operation involves a lot of logistics and delivery and storage and then optimization. Most of the chefs that we've hired, even like, because we have like our head chef who teaches the team, improves their cooking skills, their knife skills, their um, their tasting skills, how, how they should taste, etc. Uh, we put a lot of emphasis on that on the beginning. But then we realized that in our operations, cooking is probably, I would, I would say confidently now, less than 50% of the work or 40% of the work. So cooking is essential, but it's it's uh, it's not enough. So it took us about a year, year and a half to realize that, that, okay, we can improve cooking, uh, but there's a lot around cooking that we needed to work on. And this is where I think the business skills helped a lot because there was the whole uh, delivery operations to improve. There's the whole packing to, uh, to, to take the deliveries. Uh, there's the whole technology that you build around it to send in the back office, to send the orders from the the office to the kitchen to process the orders there's a whole labeling there's the whole quantity um adjustment uh, which were not necessarily let's say skills that the a, a pure chef can bring uh, and that we had to bring on the table there's the whole like how do you optimize the work in a kitchen that is quite big and not necessarily optimized where your storage area is far from uh from the cooking area so there was a lot of uh, challenges that were not necessarily purely food related uh, that I enjoyed working on. Now that sounds terrific. And uh, if you were to talk to someone who wanted to be a future kitchen manager or wanted to be a future chef, what advice would you give them? 
what kind of things uh, have you learned matter uh, that they should be thinking about if they want to take their careers to the next level? Well, there's two things. Uh, obviously, having somebody that knows a great deal about food is completely essential. There's no way we could have done this without bringing on board a very, very talented chef. So that's that's key. But I would say if you're doing an operations like we are of catering, where you're dealing with hundreds of clients and where you have deliveries and where you have to optimize things in the space, uh, keep in mind that cooking or, or let's say food skills alone are not enough. So I think that's the first learning. The second is, especially if you, you, obviously, unless you're working alone, if you're working with a number of people, think very hard about the culture that you want to create and hire people accordingly. Because it, it can be very different and it can work either way, by the way, from a culture that is very, you know, top-down, military-like, which can work and can be very efficient versus a culture where you really empower people and you have a rotating leadership where you tell people that everybody can be a leader, but yet you need to follow and, and, uh, and come up with processes and systems and follow them. So these are very different culture. And uh, just decide where you want to fall on the spectrum and hire people accordingly and make sure that if, if whoever you're hiring is not fitting the culture, don't delay letting them go. It's better for you. And for right. Them. It sounds That's like uh, kind of you can have square uh, square holes and square pegs or round uh, or round holes and, and yeah. kind of round pegs, uh, but you can't mix the two. They don't. They just don't fit. Exactly. Exactly. And you know, we've met like very like just yesterday. We interviewed a person. The guy was amazing. I mean, on a skill level, I had no doubt that we don't have anybody with that skill and could run our kitchen perfectly, but. Culture-wise, it could not be more opposite to what we're trying to do. So we, we have to say no, unfortunately. Right. I think that that's an important learning uh, that most people uh, only pick up with some scar tissue. Uh, yeah. So uh, you did something really interesting with a cookbook and Kickstarter. Tell me a little bit more about that, because uh, that sounds like a fascinating uh, journey for uh, anyone in this space. Yes, you know, it's... Um, so here's the story. The story is uh, we started when we first started this. We were thinking, hey, let's just do, uh, let's just serve individuals. Just like some of these, a lot of the, some of them defunct businesses now were doing like catering for business, for individuals, uh, especially for the lunch market. So we were, we thought, let's, let's uh, serve consumers. This issue is very, um, very hot and a lot of people are empathizing with it. But very quickly, we realized within a week or two, actually, that logistically, it's extremely hard for a small player like us to serve consumers. It's just that it doesn't make sense to do the deliveries, et cetera. So we switched, to, um, we switched to corporate and groups. But the thing is, with our story, we got a lot of PR and media coverage. And we, for our size at least, we got a very, very big and significant fan base of individuals that were following us and that were on, you know, on Facebook or on reacting to the articles, uh, mostly, I mean, 90%, 95% saying very positive things and engaged about the mission and always asking, how can we support you? What can we buy from you? And in a nutshell, I mean, the answer was nothing. We're not sending anything for individuals. I mean, obviously, we try to encourage them to tell their office manager to order from us. 
but a lot of them weren't even in New York or even in the United States. Um, I remember after uh, this is a year a year ago, we had a televised appearance uh, on Thanksgiving on PBS, um, and then we had people emailing us from Australia saying, "This is amazing! Like, can we buy?" meals or baklava from you and like no <laughs> we don't know that yet and then some people like called and, uh, and said hey can we buy the t-shirt that you are wearing so that got us thinking wait a minute there's something there what can we do now to start catering to this audience and we thought we, we, we debated a lot a lot internally uh, we were thinking maybe we do dessert boxes, maybe we do something else. But then we thought, you know, let's let's do something different. Let's tell the stories. A lot of what people enjoy are the stories and the recipes. So that's how the idea for the cookbook came by. And then we said, let's try it with a with a Kickstarter. So that was uh, a few months of work. Um, so what goes into making uh, one of these things uh, once you decide to do Kickstarter? It sounds like you started off with a with a mailing list or kind of a group of fans. So you had a, kind of a group of people you could kind of direct uh, towards your project. Uh, but what was involved in actually kind of getting it off the ground? And what did you learn as you were uh, putting all this together? Uh, we learned that it's probably three or four times more work than we originally anticipated, to make, especially if you want to make it successful. So it took us, in hindsight, it took a lot of work. I don't know if we would do it again, but it... Uh, it was rewarding. I mean, it's it's all about getting getting uh, people excited. You need to test. I, I would say if you want to have a successful Kickstarter, first of all, test the idea with a few people like behind the scenes. See how many people you can get excited. Because most, like 90% of what we got or 95% are from people we don't know. And you will quickly hit the limit with people you know that are helping you no matter what. Uh, so if you want to have a successful one you you need to be out there and testing your ideas and be open to feedback uh, to, to tough feedback of people saying you know people have to be honest with you and sometimes your friends are not necessarily honest um second video is, is key to kickstarter and that took a lot of work we had the chance to work with a friend who was a professional videographer and who charged us very little because they loved the idea. I mean, just they didn't charge for themselves, just the cost of the crew. Um, and it, it was, you know, a fairly professional level quality video. Um, and I think, I don't know if it's required, but I think in our case, it helped us. So definitely you need to invest in the video. You need to make it funny. You need to make it stand out. Uh, I think you said you need to prepare a very long mailing list. Like what we did is we contacted, we had a core team of five or six people working on this now. And we had to be a bit bold and say, okay, collect all the people that you know. Let's start assembling the largest mailing list from all of us, friends and friends of friends and any emails that we can find that we would not get into trouble if we send. And then... Um, we we had to we assembled the mailing list we prepared a lot of messages we got people excited we put like pop-ups on our website um a lot of uh, every time we had uh, an interview we would mention try to slip in and we would ask the writer hey can we mention the cookbook the kickstarter etc so we, we tried to get a lot of excitement about it and then when the day came there was like almost military discipline in terms of when you send email number one, email number two, you get people excited. 
And you have to have a lot of people that are willing to bid in in the first few hours because that gives it gives the tone for the rest. So we had secured a few people and ourselves that uh, were willing to put in some money. From, wow, that sounds from almost like uh, producing a movie or something like that. It's it's a mini effort like that. It's uh, but you know it paid off. I mean, we our goal was thirty thousand. We ended up raising about ninety five. So- so tell me about kind of good. the other piece of that. So you had to put a cookbook together. What was that like? Well, here's the thing. We haven't put the cookbook together yet. <laughs> so we put the concept of the cookbook and a few temple recipes. But the whole Kickstarter is to finance the production. Ah. Of the um, so that work is yes, still underway. Yes, yes, yes. That work is very much still underway. Actually, we sent this morning our update. It took us several months to... So we, we, we thought we could do it ourselves. But then after the Kickstarter, a couple of publishing companies contacted us. And uh, one of them we really like. We've been in negotiations with for, I hate to say, several months now. And we signed the contract in December. Wow. So we updated everybody. We're working on the recipes. They're, we have, uh, they're hiring a writer. We, we know we'll reveal the name soon who will be working with us. Um, but it's going to take, we just discovered, unfortunately, with, that with publishers, it takes a very long time. <laughs> what, what's hard about so, this that's surprising for you? Is it the, the level of thinking through it? Is it the specificity of the recipes? Is it pictures? What's the part of uh, putting all this together that's, that's challenging? The, I, you know, I mean, they're, they're in charge of the production now. Obviously, we're providing the recipes. So we're, we're working a lot on the recipes. And that's probably the easy part. Um, the photos, we also have a star photographer with us on the crew. But... It's like arranging, uh, I mean, we were taking photos in our own kitchen with some decorations around, but now they, you know, they have to rent a special kitchen and you have to rent it months in advance. And then, you know, they have, I don't know how many review processes and they have to time the delivery and they have their marketing plan. So it's just much, much more, much longer and more involved that we ha- than we had imagined. Um but it's giving us a visibility, obviously, that we would never have had had we not. Well, done it sounds like uh, if you go back to your mission, you're, you'll, you'll be able to spread this to, to many more people than, than you even thought uh, you could, kind of at the beginning. Yes, yes, exactly, exactly, and it's exciting, you know. I mean, it's spreading the food, the recipes, but also the stories. That that's incredible. Is there a favorite story, kind of that uh, that kind of comes to mind for you uh, that that kind of people might be interested in? I, Every chef has a, has a very particular story. Our chef from Nepal, for example, had a um, uh, a grandfather who used to be the um, personal doctor to the king of Nepal. And um, I think his wife spent a lot of family, uh, sorry, a lot of time um, in the kitchen over there and learning the royal recipes. So a lot of her cooking is inspired from the royal cooking in Nepal, which wow. I found amazing. And she has a story. That's so interesting. And, and every one of your chefs, um, I'm sure, has something similar. Yes. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's this one. Another one of our chefs, I mean, it's um, she, uh, she had a restaurant, a small restaurant in Iran, and she's just an amazing cook. And every recipe, she's a poet and a cook. So every recipe, like she tells me uh, the, the story, and it's, it's just fascinating. She, uh, we, we did the New Year's Eve at my place and she, she was cooking and then we had like uh, Iranian poetry above each dish. So it was really, really something. That's really cool. Um, other like 
it's really cool anecdotes maybe in the kitchen or in the kitchen itself uh it's funny because not some of our people and maybe half of them they don't speak good english some of them don't speak good english at all and surprisingly they just get to communicate together in a way that i cannot explain so there's uh there's something at work there that uh, maybe kitchen talk or or uh, or food talk food is the universal uh, language that, that brings amazing. us all together right <laughs> Exactly. That's it. And, and you know what? They, it, there's a couple of fresh, like there's a salad that was a fusion salad that was invented in our kitchen, um, mixing different like, flavors together. So that, that was all sounds nice terrific. Story. So are you ready for a lightning round? Oh, lightning round. Okay. Let's see. Uh, how your favorite book or movie? <laughs> uh, recent. Um, recent book. Uh, I'm reading an amazing book now called Reinventing Organizations. I really, it's it's impressive to me. By Frederic Laloux. Uh, any big news that's hitting the industry? Uh, any big news that's hitting the industry? A lot of catering, uh, like individual catering businesses closing and <laughs> running out of business. Uh -oh. um, is that the thing uh, that you're trying to figure out? <laughs> No, well, maybe. I mean, I'm, it's it's a little bit scary for us, but at the same time, it's uh, opening up. Uh, and is is that with uh, kind of the new yeah. uh, kind of uh, wage in uh, in New York, or is it, is it something else that's kind of driving that? No, I think it's just like, especially I'm talking about the very big ones, right? That invested massively and then maybe didn't get the pickup that they were they they were expecting and realized that. Delivering all over New York City is is not as oh easy you're as saying they, uh, it's the thought. Silicon Valley folks uh, or the uh, the venture funded folks that are washing up. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and uh, exactly. any interesting new uh, content or uh, product or service uh, that uh, you've come across? Um, it may not be a new product or service. It's something that you recommended to us, but that I really like now. T sheets. It's been very helpful in, uh, in, you know, tracking the hours of our employees and then helping them figure out, you know, how much they were. Spoken like a true COO. Uh, um, how can uh, users yes. uh, follow you and uh, and get in touch? And uh, is there anything that uh, we should be watching out for uh, from uh, Eat Off Beat next? Yes. So uh, obviously on our website, eatoffbeat.com, our Facebook page, Eat Off Beat, Instagram. We have a Twitter page. We're not so active there mostly Instagram and Facebook. Um, and then obviously, I, I hate to say not soon, but it, it won't be soon. We will have a cookbook. I think it's more a year from now. Uh, watch out for the cookbook. And then uh, in about six months, we are planning to launch and pilot some, um, some you know, consumer products that are more in, in local cafes in New York, like uh, Baklava Box and uh and some uh, local desserts dry desserts uh in, in local cafes and also uh selling on our website uh, that sounds terrific and it sounds like uh, uh if i hear correctly there's growth and uh and need for a new kitchen in the future so uh, if there's people who know real estate uh, kitchen real estate in new york um you you may want to reach out it sounds like these guys are going somewhere absolutely this started yesterday <laughs> actually 
looking for so um <laughs> so great well uh, thank you Lisam, for joining us and uh and taking the time to share with us an incredible conversation and uh, we look forward to seeing uh, the great things that come thank you vj appreciate it yeah uh, the great things that come